Father, thank you for this morning and the gift it is to come together and worship. And Lord, I am very mindful of that because over the last couple of years, there are times when we could not gather. And so thank you uh, for allowing us to be here and thank you for how good it is to be together as a group, as a church. Uh, Lord, we pray for Bob this morning that you would bring healing to his body. Thank you that you are the great physician. Give any doctors he's working with wisdom um, and help bring him to full health. And we look forward to having him back here. God, I'm also mindful of a lot going on in the world today that uh, in the last couple weeks um, has, has changed. And so we lift up our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, Lord, uh, and we pray for your mercy uh, for your, uh, you are the Prince of Peace. We pray that peace would prevail. Lord, do we know that any time uh, someone's life is lost, whether it's a believer or not, that it grieves your spirit. And we acknowledge that, Lord, and we pray again for, for you, the Prince of Peace, to intervene and bring an end to uh, really man-caused, man-initiated suffering. And so we just ask for your mercy there, Lord. Last, as we look at your word together this morning, we pray that uh, you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift of yourself in this. Help us to, for each of us to hear exactly what you would want us to say. And as I share, Lord, I pray that uh, you would become greater and I would become less that you would speak to the people here and to the people watching at home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, um, we have a kind of a fun passage to look at and to set it up. I, I want to no- let you know, I'm a person who lo- I love scary movies. Uh, I'm a night person and my wife is a morning person, which is God's sense of humor that works itself out in most marriages. And, uh, and so a lot of times, like, I will, like, she'll fall asleep, and I will like to watch the scary movies. And I've loved them ever since I was a kid. Um, I remember when I saw Halloween the first time. I was 10 years old, uh, and it terrified me. Uh, and I'm not glorifying it. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was the kind of thing where every time you went to the bathroom for a month or two, you look behind the shower curtain, you know, that whole thing. But I actually think it started earlier when I was a kid. Uh, six or seven years old, uh, I loved to get, I loved Halloween and to get dressed up. And, uh, back then, uh, there was this one store, Bob, Bob and I are actually from the same hometown, Arlington, Virginia. And there was a, a store called Ayers and it was like a hardware store that had other stuff. And that's where you would go and buy your Halloween costume. And if you're been around a little bit, you remember these, but they were, they had a mask that had a rubber band around the back and you just sort of put on your face like this. And then they had kind of a plastic, almost a smock that you would put on and tie, it would tie in the back. And at the time, the show Planet of the Apes was really big. And I never missed it. And I would watch it. If you don't know what Planet of the Apes is, I'm offended and Google it when this is over. Uh, but, uh, so I, I decided to do this, and I had a toy gun, and I have the, my Planet of the Apes mask on, and I think I'm like, I'm like super scary in this thing. 
And, and so Halloween comes, and my mom takes me trick-or-treating, and then we decide we are going to go, and we are going to scare Aunt Judy. I'm like, this is, you know, again, my six, seven-year-old Joe thinks this will be awesome. Aunt Judy uh, lived by herself, and so we did all of our trick-or-treating, and then it was like, we're going to go, and I'm just going to go and ring the bell, and she's going to see me, and this is going to be terrifying. Get to her house. My mom lets me out of the car. I had the wisdom to know. I'm like, Mom, you hang back here for two reasons. I, I, I don't, I mean, this is what I think I was thinking. Number one, someone needs to be here to console Aunt Judy when this event is over, you know. She's going to be a shattered person, ter- you know, scared and all this sort of stuff. And the other thing is, the reality is when you're trying to scare somebody or whatever, having your mom behind you really undermines the whole thing. And so I'm like, Mom, you hang back. I'm going to go do this, and, uh, and then you kind of clean up, you know, kind of pick up the pieces of Aunt Judy when this is over. So I go to the door. Uh, unbeknownst to me, my mother has given Aunt Judy the heads up, and Aunt Judy has a great sense of humor. She opens the door. The house is totally dark. She's got, uh, all she's got is like this dark hat over, and she's got a candle she's holding in front of her face. And all she says is, she goes, hello. The tables were turned 100%. I threw my Halloween candy bag up in the air. I threw my gun up in the air, and I tore off those steps. And, I mean, it was, I was so scared, and I was, I was, pretty upset. I was like, you know, I felt like I'd been betrayed and all this sort of stuff. But I'm thinking back in my life, again, I was a little kid, so it's not like it's little kids scared, but I'm like, I think that's the most scared I've ever been. You know, that that was the most uh, acute moment of fear that I've ever experienced. Um, what we're talking about today uh, is something literally that, that, that would be very, that would fit very well in a modern horror movie. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of scary and intense passage. Uh, we're going to look at an encounter Jesus has with a demon-possessed man. Uh, and we're going to kind of walk through what we can learn from the man, what we can, walk, what we can learn from Jesus in the passage, and then we're going to have some, we're going to ask some questions at the end. This is from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of the voice, top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. 
And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, we've read this before. A lot of, a lot of times you read it, and you, you kind of get a feel for this passage. Um, but I think if we pause and think about this encounter, you have this collision be, between really the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Uh, and you don't necessarily see this so overtly very often in Scripture or in our world. You know, it, it's, it's more subtle. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, so the first thing that we want to understand as we begin this, he, he, when he goes to this region, this is a Gentile land. He's going to a place, uh, and in the book of Joshua, it talks about this, this tribe would have been exiled there. And so you have people that have been expelled from the kingdom of Judea, and they're there, and Jesus comes to where they are. This is his first foray into this sort of Gentile mission, if you will. And he finds this man, and to understand sort of the depths of, it's not that Jesus is taking a risk, but the depths of him leaving his Jewish world and entering the Gentile world, We want to understand this man is unclean, and he's unclean, though, in four different ways. I just heard somebody explain this, and I thought it was really profound. Number one, it says that he is filled with an unclean spirit or an impure spirit. That's the first thing. The second thing is he's just living in a Gentile territory, which Jewish people would have considered unclean. When we talk about them traveling, when Jesus would go through Samaria, if you'll remember, his disciples were like, no, 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 like we go around Samaria. We don't want to encounter the unclean people. So he goes to a place that's unclean. Third, where does the guy live? Around tombs. Dead people were unclean. You couldn't be around the dead. You were unclean if you did that, and you would have to go through the rites of purification. And then fourth, He's near a herd of pigs, which were for Jews the most unclean and vile animal. In fact, when they were erecting the Jewish temple, 
um, went to with people that were opposing their their building of it would hurdle uh, dead pig remains into the temple, knowing that the people doing the construction, when they encountered this, would have to stop what they were doing and go do the rites of purification for a week. So they would do this to slow down the process. So that's that's kind that's some of what's going on. Now let's talk about the man for a minute. We see this man, and he's going through this terrible thing. And one of the things that we can learn, as believers in Jesus Christ, there is a real, tangible enemy. We, we, we correctly identify that, that ourselves, you know, our sin and our rebellion is a primary issue. But sometimes we miss the fact there's, an, there's a real enemy, a real opposition to those that are following Christ. I was a high school football coach for a few years, and whenever we would line up and practice our plays against nobody, we looked unbeatable. Every play worked. You know, like we scored, I was like, we might score 100 points in the first half tonight. We just looked fantastic. And then when we went out on the field, it was a different story because there was opposition. And sometimes for us, we get in situations and you're like, man, why is this so hard? What is going on here? The reality is we've got to be aware, and we don't need to look for a demon under every rock. That's not what I'm saying. But there is real opposition that we encounter. Second thing about this man, um, it, it says this, um, he would tear the chains, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. You would hear this guy, uh, people would try to subdue him, but they weren't able to do it, and he would live in the tombs by himself. This man is totally isolated. We've learned some things about isolation in the last couple years. Uh, and, and we've learned how kind of how cruel it can be. Now, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. I'm a person who recharges by being by myself. Solitude is, is, is for a kind of a, a, a definite period of time, and, it, and it's with some purpose to it. You know, when you spend time with the Lord in the morning, that's solitude. That's not isolation. You're also, when you're in solitude, you can be, you're connected to God. This man is completely cut off from everybody. People are afraid of him. And, and isolation, isolation is one of the ways that we become more susceptible to being tempted by Satan. When you are alone, when you are cut off from other people, whether it's fellowship with Christians, friendship, connected to God, you are way more susceptible to temptation. And, and, be, and again, it's a, like Satan uses isolations. He will tell you you're alone when you are not. So isolation is a, a powerful tool in the hand of the enemy. Another thing we see with this man uh, is, the, is the complete uh, and utter dismantling of his life. John 10.10, we talk about it all the time. We tend to focus on the second part of the verse. The second part of the verse says, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. 
The first part says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this is exactly what we see here. This is the thief coming in, stealing this man's life, killing whatever hope he's got, and maybe trying to kill him, although letting him live just to torture him and destroying him. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And this is a really stark picture of that. But that's what's going, that's part of what's going on. Usually when you and I are tempted, um, we are tempted like um, uh, following our own set of rules. Like sort of like, okay, you know, God has some good ideas, but I've got some other ideas about myself. And we sort of talk ourselves into, this is, I'm speaking for me, I think it's true of all of you, but I can know it's definitely true of me. Talk ourselves into why I'm righteous. You know, you kind of make your own list of, well, I've done this, 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 and this, and so I'm pretty good. Um, and so usually when we're tempted, it's kind of into a um, proud numbness. that, And we, we forget or we tell ourselves that we don't need God. And so usually it goes that way. This way, this is like, an overt, full frontal assault on this guy. Like, this is not that. This is sort of the other extreme. And that's what we see. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's gone into an extreme place of darkness. Some of us, particularly in the last couple of years, have felt some of this way. I work with teenagers, and depression and anxiety, mental health, is at an all-time high. It was at an all-time high prior to the pandemic and escalating like a staircase. And it is now substantially worse. I have a friend who's on a, a regional board of a major healthcare system. And, and during this, the last couple of years, she would advise us about COVID. And when we were on a, having a meeting one time, uh, we asked the question about mental health. And she's a high-ranking professional, and she began to cry just in response to the question and all of the statistics and all of the things that she was seeing. So this man has gone into this place of extreme darkness. And people that, if you feel like this, if you feel like he feels, you might, you might say to God, hey, you, you can't save me. You can't rescue me from this. Here's the answer. The cross is sufficient. It remains sufficient. Um, when I talk with kids, one of the questions that they often ask, and I feel like I say this most times I speak here, but it seems to come up in every passage, is why was the crucifixion so brutal? Like, like why couldn't have Jesus come now and there have been like a lethal injection where he took a painkiller before? Like why? I mean, he, they didn't just kill him. I mean, it was a brutal torture that happened before his death. And I've come up with three reasons. Um, number one, sin is that serious to God. It is a big deal. Um, I think we think it's like, oh, I've made mistakes. It's like, no, no, this is wanton rebellion against your creator. This isn't forgetting to lock the door. Um, and I, the, the best analogy I can draw is that sin, our rebellion, our turning our back on God, is like coming home and catching your spouse in bed with someone else. It is incredibly offensive. And I think we, we kind of forget that. So number one, I think sin is that serious to God. And it deserves, it needs a harsh penalty. 
Number two, so that nobody, no matter what you've been through, can say to Jesus, hey, you don't really know how hard my life has been. You haven't been through hard things like I have been. And when it talks about we have a great high priest, Jesus, fully God, fully man, whatever terrible or difficult thing we're going through, he gets it. (laughs) He really gets it. He has suffered immensely. And for parents, um, God exists in a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly how that works. I went to seminary, I read books. Let me tell you a secret. Nobody really knows. It's great, and God exists in relationship, but like we don't really understand the depths of it. Like people in, you know, 1000 AD didn't understand electricity. Um, but here's what's really great for parents. God the Father knows what it's like to see his son suffer. Think about that. You watch your kids go through stuff. Like God, God relates. He gets it. So the second reason for the brutality of the cross is, is that Jesus, uh, Jesus, none of us can say, hey, you don't know how hard my life is. And the third reason, and I think about this man, is that there is no sin so great. There is nothing you have done that is so great. And I think for some people, uh, maybe something that's been done to you that's so great that Jesus couldn't pay for it on the cross. We, sometimes we bring it in and say, you really couldn't love me. You couldn't love me enough. You couldn't forgive this thing. He can't. And I think that's why the cross, that's when we look at this, this man, that the cross is sufficient. This guy has, I don't know how it, the mechanics of it work, completely under the control of Satan. And Jesus died for him the same way. He died for somebody that looks nice and goes to church. Another thing about the man. This is going to sound uh, a little obvious. The man was not happy. I think that's fair. Um, He was, you know, it seemed like he wasn't in his right mind, all this sort of thing. But I, I think if we're honest deep down, when we think about, when we're sort of drawn into some temptation, we have a belief that there is some satisfaction that God is keeping from us. And if we would kind of eh, kind of move this way a little bit, that there would be some, we're like, oh, I really, like that would be really satisfying. That would be really satisfying, something I really want. And, and it's not. This guy, like I don't know what his gateway, you know, we talk about gateway drugs. I don't know what the first step was in this process. It doesn't tell us. But, but like for us, the first step is often something we think, oh, I think I kind of, I, I maybe want that. Maybe you feel like you're, it's just a little move away from the Lord. You know, it's not a big deal. It's just like a step or two. And I just think it's important to know that this man is, is absolutely miserable. He's not happy. You know, there's, it, there, and there's nothing about giving yourself over to sin. Ultimately, it's really satisfying. It's a lie. And our enemy tells us that lie over and over. And a lot of times, we, I, fall for it. So those are some things about the man. What do we learn 
about Jesus from this passage. Number one, Jesus can enter into any place or any mess we can imagine. He's not afraid. He goes to a place that he doesn't belong with people that won't like him, and he's undeterred. He, you know, he could overcome the rules of the Jews and transcend them. Uh, one of the things I thought about is we've got sometimes little structures that we build, little sort of righteousness tests. What, which, which ones do we apply? You know, what's your little list? Oh, if I do these things, then I'll be okay. Jesus transcends that. Second thing about Jesus, Jesus demonstrates total power over demons. We do have opposition. Like, we have an enemy. But when it's Jesus versus our enemy, it is not a fair fight. It, it's not a, they're not wrestling, they're not wrestling for dominance. It's, it's not like that. Jesus does what he wants there. He has complete and total power over, over uh, Satan and demons. How do we know this? Number one, what's the first thing the guy does? It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Immediately, this guy does this. He goes and, and it, he worships him. He goes and, and worships Jesus. This is I don't know if this is the human part inside the man. I read about this this week. Or the, or the demonic part acknowledging who God is. But he falls before Jesus and he worships him. That's the first thing. Again, no one had been able to control or subdue this thing. As soon as Jesus shows up, immediately, game over. And that's number one. Number two, it begged Jesus to send him into the pigs. And you know, when you read this passage, you're like, what? let's leave the pigs out of this. Like, what do the pigs do? They're just walking around doing, you know, here's the deal with it. It's actually really interesting. So, uh, one of the things that you'll, that you'll, you can learn about is there's a thing called, that theologians talk about called a theology of place. Okay? And that's why, uh, at, at some level, like, there's some places if you visit that there, it, it it carries with it the sense of its history. So we had a friend who recently moved to Poland. Uh, he's with the State Department. State Department. Uh, we don't really know what he does. He's busy right now, I can tell you that. But, um, and he said, hey, you know, you, you should come visit and be great. And he said, he goes, we live near Auschwitz, the concentration camp. And he'd been there before, and he talked about it. He goes, you know, when you walk around the grounds, you know, you can't, you feel what's going on. Like you almost, you, you know, it is, you know, and they, they've maintained certain things to, uh, as a reminder of what happened. Uh, but there's a thing called a theology of place and there's sort of evil or satanic devil strongholds. Um, pigs at that time. Well, let me, let me say one more thing about the theology of place. This is, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about a movie. This is a movie that is not for children. I want to be clear. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix, it's called Wild Wild Country. It is about a guru and a cult that that bought a property in the Pacific Northwest, and they ended up uh, kind of taking over the town. What they would do is they would move into one town, and then their members would run for election to the local offices. And it, the story's about the fight 
of, uh, of this. And so it's this really bizarre thing. It's a bizarre movie. And again, it's, it's, for, it's not for children. Uh, well, the, the cult was bizarre. The movie's not. It's just a documentary. Well, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, but Young Life, when, 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 when this all came apart uh, and the guy had to, had to go back to his home country and the cult was sort of shattered, Young Life, our ministry, bought the property. And now, in this place where this bizarro, and it's in, they, they talk about this in the movie, um, which, is, which is pretty interesting. They have a picture of a Young Life club and stuff going on there. Uh, the locals are, are, uh, are, you know, they're a little nervous that some other, you know, for them, another religious group came in, but I'm sure it's worked out better. Uh, but here's what I mean by theology of place. There's a place where bad things happen. Where, where God, you know, was opposed and, you know, evil was taught. And now, thousands of kids every year will hear the gospel proclaimed there. There's a part of God that really enjoys, and we'll talk about this. This will show up later on. He, he, loves, he loves redeeming people. He also redeems places. And so in this situation, um, it's, it's, a, it's an evil stronghold. It's, it's kind of, again, this is part of the Decapolis. This is the 10 Gentile cities that Bob's talked about. It, it'll, it would be known as, and we'll talk about this a little later, Hippo is the name of the place, right by Hippo. Uh, and pigs, they, they would sacrifice pigs to, to the, on the altar of Satan. So the demons might have felt real, like, safe with the pigs. They would build little pig, you know, pig uh, idols and pig altars and stuff, uh, which was obviously very much not what Jews would do. Um. But there's a theology of place. And it sends Jesus into, and asks Jesus to send him into the pigs, and he does it. He, he, he allows them to do that. Um, but part of this is this demonstration of what this, this area means, what it represents. The last thing is that we look like when we talk about Jesus having total power is Legion. It's interesting, Legion, that answer, when he says, What's your name? He says, Legion. The Romans helped found the Decapolis, and that was the name for a group of Roman soldiers. Either, I think it's 6,000 or 12,500. They're not exactly sure which one it meant. And so it's, it even answered in a Roman term. What else do we learn about Jesus? The man is set free. Come out of this man, you, you impure spirit, and, it, and he says, my name is Legion. It goes down. He gave them permission. And then it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The man is set free. And it's interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't say in the first part where it describes him, you have this guy that can't be chained up, running around the tombs, shrieking, cutting himself. And it doesn't say they were scared. But it doesn't say that the people were afraid of him. Here, when he's in his right mind, he's dressed in, in his right mind, they were scared. What does that tell us about, about, about Jesus? What does it tell us? Well, people were more scared of, of Jesus being there than what the, the demon-possessed man was doing. God's power can be terrifying, especially when he works in a way that, that we don't expect or not used to. 
had a conversation this week. Young Life is all over the world. A lot of people think it's American. It's not. We're like on 106 countries, I think. A lot of them are in the, in the Middle East or the Far East, and we don't call it Young Life or you know, we don't have Young Life business cards or anything like that. You know, you have to be wise about how you do that. And on Thursday, I had a phone conversation with, with my friend who is the, our main person in Iraq. Um, and we're, you know, just doing, uh, you know, he was going to some meetings and connecting with some people. And they have some sort of government um, acknowledged churches, and then they have a lot of house churches. And by the way, the church in the Middle East is, is doing great. Like it's growing at China, same thing. It's, it's, um, it's going fantastic. And he told me about a meeting he was at in a house church. Uh, and they go into this house, and uh, all these conversations are happening through translators. And my friend, uh, there's a man there that he'd never met. And he knows the person whose house it's in. He talks to him. He talks to the man's daughter. And then this guy, they introduce this guy. And through a translator, the man says, if you'd have come here three years ago, right now you'd be dead because I was a jihadist, and I would kill people, but now I've come to faith in Christ. Um, I, you know, that's a situation that when you think about the power of God and it's scary, my friend, I'm like, that is a scary situation. I'm like, what if, what if this is a cover, you know? Um, but like the power of God can be really scary. And that's like kind of an extreme example that, that most of us will not experience. But here are, the ones that we, here are the ones that we do experience. We are often more afraid of what following Jesus is going to cost us than anything else. The man that mentored me, he said this a hundred times if he said it once, and it is so true. He said it's more easy to get people to believe in life, on, in life on Mars than it is to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He says the reason... Believing in life on Mars doesn't cost you anything. Following Jesus, believing in him, if he is who he said he is, it should cost us everything. So that, and that can be pretty scary. We're more afraid about what Jesus is going to ask us to do, but most likely it's what he's going to ask us to sort of surrender and hand over to him than anything else. And the people in this passage... When they, when they show up there and the man is in his right mind, they're scared. It does, again, what a, what, a, what a strange response. I think, again, I get it, but it's like, wow. You think that he'd been scared before. Now, this man understandably wants to go with Jesus, and we're, we're coming to the, the last lap. The man understandably wants to go with Jesus. Uh, you see this often in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts, that somebody's healed and they want to be near the person that healed them. It makes total sense. A, that person has demonstrated an ability, like, you know, to, to, to take care of you that you want to embrace. Also, they've demonstrated love for you in a way that no one else is even able to do. And if you're the man, you want to go, you just want to follow Jesus all, you know, and just be around him. And Jesus says to some people, follow me. He says that to us. And to this guy, the guy's like, I, I want to come with you. Jesus says, no, no. And I, I'm sure he would, there was some fear of, hey, what if the demons come back? 
Like, when you leave, what, what's going to happen to me? Jesus tells him, no. You know, tell, tell people how God had mercy on you. And it makes sense. Again, he wants to go be with Jesus. He's either, what's going to happen to me when you leave, or I, I just want to be with you. What's the lesson? The lesson is this. Jesus' power and presence remains when he was not physically there. It was, it's just the same. We have the advantage of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This man didn't have it, but it didn't matter. Uh, it didn't matter. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit the way you and I do. It didn't matter because Jesus' power and presence remained there. He, he, we'll find out more about what happened to him. Um, to, uh, today, we've been given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses is Colossians 1.27 talks about the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, that Jesus lives in us. And even though he's not physically present here in this room, he's actually present here in this room. So what's the result when this guy goes? Uh, the man becomes a missionary to the Decapolis, telling everyone in the area about what Jesus has done for him. And God does a mighty work. Uh, and uh, Jose, can you put up that picture? I don't know if it's up or not, is it up? There you go, thank you. So, when Jesus would have sailed over uh, to this area, he would have seen these cliffs, okay? Four centuries later, this chapel was built in that spot. Uh, and in fact, it became kind of, a, it became a hub of the gospel. And, and when they had the uh, things like the, the early church councils, the Council of Nicaea, the Bishop of Hippo was there. This is that place. This is probably the Bishop of Hippo's church. So a place where the gospel had not gone, the first place they go, there's this kind of explosion. And all it is is this single man going and telling, how God, telling the people what God has done for him. That is a really good reminder for you and me on how do we share the gospel. Sometimes we outthink ourselves. We want to get real clever, you know, uh, but sometimes it's just like, let me tell you about what God has worked in my life. As we finish up, uh, how do you relate to the passage? Maybe you relate to the townspeople, just want Jesus to keep his distance. It's like, hey, you seem good. We kind of have an agreement. You're not gonna, I don't want to invite you too far into my life. I'm scared about what you might do, what you might ask me to do. Maybe you relate to the possessed man in a couple of ways. There are things in your life that, Right now, sitting here or watching at home, they've got control over you. It's probably secret. Satan's probably isolated you from other people finding this out. You present yourself better probably than this guy did. I would say that with confidence. But the things you're dealing with, you feel just as out of control and helpless. You can come to Jesus. He has the power to set you free from that. Last thought, perhaps you relate to the, to the demon-possessed man this way. God has done a work in your life. You're following him and growing in Christ. And maybe right now, God is calling you to be his missionary like this man was. Now, I don't know if it means you're going to be a, a, you know, a paid missionary. Um, might be at work, might be with your neighbors or some family members. 
Either way, this is God telling you to get out of the bleachers and get into the game. How are you going to respond? I promise you, if you say yes, you will not regret it. I'm going to pray. Uh, We are going to pick up the chairs, right, Jose? All right, I got it. Bob, I remember the chairs. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak. Your scripture never returns void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.